welcome back to the Prairie Pod. It is episode five. I can't even believe it, Jess. Can you believe we're already at episode five? Trucking right along here in season two. I know, it feels good. And I'm super excited because today we have some awesome guests with us today. And we're going to have you guys round robin introduce yourselves so that people know what's going on. This is like, we got a stack, we have a full house of guests. Carol, let's start with you. Tell us who you are. Hi, I'm Carol Hall, and I'm a herpetologist with the DNR's Minnesota Biological Survey Program. And I've been working with the DNR on this position since 1991, going around the state doing surveys for amphibians and reptiles. Nice. Jeff, you go ahead. All right, I'm Jeff LeClaire, and I am an MBS, or Minnesota Biological Survey Zoologist. And so I also go around the state and uh, survey for all species of amphibians and reptiles in all areas of the state of Minnesota. Uh, but in recent years, I've been focusing on mark recapture and telemetry with some specific species of amphibians and reptiles uh, at specific sites in both southeastern and western Minnesota. Uh, that's including, but not limited to, what we're going to talk about today with the Minnesota River Reptile Project. Jeff, you said a word there that I want to make sure everybody understands before we introduce our last guest. Telemetry. What you talking about, man? Telemetry. That is radio telemetry. That's where we take the nifty little transmitters and we put them inside the animals and we track them every day or um, every other week or whatever it is to follow their uh, movements and see where they do specific things like um, what, how big their home range is, where they nest, where they overwinter, all kinds of crazy stuff that they don't want to tell us, but we have to know. <laughs> nice. Lisa? Hi, I'm Lisa Gelvin Inver, and I am the uh, regional non-game wildlife biologist for the uh, DNR non-game wildlife program for the 32 counties of the southern region. And uh, we always kid, we're kind of small and we do it all. Uh, uh, first of all, non-game wildlife are most of Minnesota's wildlife. Uh, that Those that aren't typically uh, harvested um, for food or for sport, and that's everything from birds and mammals, fish, insects, but also reptiles and amphibians. And my work includes everything from survey and monitoring and research to translating that information to guide conservation and other land use. Also on the ground habitat uh, conservation as well as public outreach. So whew, that's, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, but one of my favorites most recently has been uh, the work on what we're going to talk about today, the Minnesota River Reptile Project, um, because one, I got to study a lot of fascinating critters, and also because it weaves together all of that, the different parts of my job, um, like res restoration of prairie rock outcrops and that technical guidance. And, and so everything is connected just like it is in nature. And I get to work with some really cool people like Carol and Jeff. I like that. We're one big happy family in the DNR. Yay, <laughs> family. <laughs> so we, this is a perfect segue. Thank you all for that. And we're gonna jump right in because we have so much to cover and we wanna make sure that we give you all the good deets. So today we're gonna talk about everybody's favorite subject, snakes and skinks. Skink with an eye. 
That's what we're saying. <laughs> Just so you guys know. Yep. So Jess <laughs> was hoping we were going to talk about prairie turtles. We might have time to ask that question for uh, Jess's near miss in the field with a prairie turtle that was stalking her. But first, <laughs> we're going to get to snakes. We're going to have to get it in. We're going to have to get that question in eventually. <laughs> I know. We will. We'll get there. So specifically, um, let's, okay, we're jumping right in. So Jeff, we're talking today about the Minnesota River Reptile Project, and you mentioned earlier when you were talking about um, a little bit about what this is and some of the tracking that you do. So tell me, start out with the basics. What's a herp? What are we talking about? Uh, so that's kind of a loaded question, and you wouldn't think it would be, but it is. So I'm going to give you the short answer first. The short answer is that it is um, amphibians and reptiles in the same group. Herp is short for herptile, which means that amphibians and reptiles, again, which are two different groups, are kind of now in the same group. Um, the act of looking for herptiles is often called herping. And for those of us who really like to do this on a regular basis, we're called herpers. And uh, it's very, uh, so So anyhow, um, that's the short answer. The kind of the little more lengthy uh, answer is that um, reptiles and amphibians are not closely related to one another as groups. So it's a really unnatural group. And also the members that make up amphibians, for instance, the smaller groups, frogs and toads and salamanders and things like that, that are that make up amphibians are not closely related to one another, and neither are the groups that make up reptiles. So there really is no such thing as an amphibian or a reptile anymore, unless you're talking about snakes and lizards, then the reptiles. But all of these are we're finding out now with their recent phylogenies is that none of these are natural groups, but we keep them together for the sake of tradition. <laughs> so are you, you're not saying that snakes aren't natural? You just mean it's not natural for them to be grouped together. I just want to clarify. Exactly. If you're going to call anything a reptile nowadays, snakes and lizards still qualify. Everything else does not. That's really good. I get really confused about that. So I'm thankful for that reminder. <laughs> uh, so along those same lines, Jeff, tell us a little bit about the basics of gopher snake identification and biology. How do we tell a gopher snake from, from other snakes? Okay. Well, the first thing I'd like to point out is you may hear us use the term bull snake a lot during this. Uh, and that's really what we call uh, gopher snakes here in, in Minnesota. So, um, so let's see here. So a bull snake is a subspecies of a gopher snake. And the only one, uh, sub, the only subspecies of gopher snake that lives in Minnesota and throughout the Midwest is a bull snake. So when we say gopher snake, we mean bull snake. When we say bull snake, we mean gopher snake. The only place <laughs> this doesn't apply is when you get to the west, the western part of the U.S., where there's several subspecies of gopher snake. So that doesn't count. But here, same thing, same difference. <laughs> just so we don't confuse people. All right, so bull snakes, <laughs> I'm just going to jump right in with that. Bull snakes uh, get about six feet long. Um, on average, they're about four to five feet. Uh, but they can grow up to lengths of six feet long. And they really have kind of a busy pattern. They have these um, big blotches or spots down their back and on their sides. 
but they have a lot of little speckling that's in between um, these spots. And so it kind of looks like, um, again, the, the, the spots and the blotches on the outside are not really, really um, prominent as they are in, in other species of snakes. Um, another really crazy thing about their pattern is that um, they are kind of a black and white up near the neck and the anterior portion of the body. Then when you get to the mid body, it's kind of a dull yellow or a straw yellow for the background. And um, the blotches become a really nice kind of rich brown color. Um, and so uh, that's really cool. But then when you get to the tail, the bright, the yellow brightens up again. It's a nice bright yellow brown color and that really really dark rich black banding or circles on the tail or uh, banding on the tail and the important thing about this is that it looks like you're looking at three different kinds of snakes even though it's all in the same one and that's a really good way to differentiate this species from other species which kind of have um, the same color pattern and scheme throughout their entire um, body so things like fox snakes uh, northern water snakes, uh, both species of hognose, milk snakes, things like that tend not to have as much speckling and tend to look the same uniform. Tell them about their head. Uh, let's see here. What else we got? Oh, the, the head is kind of a, a yellow. Yeah, the yellow coloration and um, which is heavily marked with black. So there's a lot of uh, dark markings on a kind of a bright yellow head. And uh, these markings are so distinct, in fact, that we can even identify individuals one from another by using these types, this pattern on the top of the head. The snout is very narrow and pointed and the rostral scale or the snout scale, the scale that's found in the snout is um, very tough and enlarged. And they use that to burrow into the sand and into the soil. Um, so that's an, uh, an interesting thing about these guys. Um, so they are powerful constrictors. They consume mostly small mammals, rodents. They have impressive appetites. And uh, their first line of defense is camouflage. So they usually try not to uh, not to be seen. Uh, and they will just sit there kind of coiled up basking, hoping that their crazy pattern will blend in with the surrounding grasses which actually it works pretty well for that. So, <laughs> so it makes it hard to find them, I imagine. Yeah, so definitely. pretty much a prairie snake is what you're so saying. So they are definitely a prairie snake. They need to have prairie. Um, and I would say that, you know, um, their temperament varies quite a bit from what they're, they're individuals. So roughly half of the snakes that you meet will be pretty <laughs> aggressive. Uh, and they will give a loud raspy hiss, probably the loudest hiss of any snake in the state. And they'll coil up and they'll strike and they'll try to look all big and tough and they'll vibrate their tail. Now, their tail, when they're making this, this vibration, if it hits dry grass or leaves or anything like that, it's gonna make a buzzing so a sound or a rattling sound. And people will be like, like oh my gosh, I saw a rattlesnake. And it, well, they don't have a rattle on the end of their tail. And uh, so a lot of times people will mistake these for rattlesnakes. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing. The other 50% of these guys are roughly the other half that I've encountered are very docile and very calm. Even a wild snake, you know, just from the get-go, you pick it up, and it's just like, oh, okay, and it just, it just kind of goes with the flow and is really laid back. So these guys vary a lot in their temperaments. 
<laughs> so, and even though these guys put on a big, you know, oppressive display, and they're all mean and tough, they're completely harmless to humans. Even the ones that have the aggressive kind of demeanor, they're completely harmless to humans. <laughs> well, and that's an important that. point. Um, you had me at how beautiful they were, and then you started talking about their hiss, and I got I got scared again. But we'll we'll move forward. Carol, could, we want to jump um, to make sure we get this in. Tell us a little bit about the other side of what we're talking about today: skink identification and biology. Sure. Well, the uh, five line common five lined skink uh, is actually not all that common in Minnesota, and it is listed as a species of special concern or a species of greatest conservation, in greatest conservation need. Um, and it is sort of patchy, patchy in its distribution in Minnesota. Um, we have records in our study area, obviously, in uh, Western Minnesota, in the, in the, along the Minnesota River Valley, um, in Redwood, Yellow Medicine, and Ren, Renville County. Counties. Um, in addition to that, we've, they occur in southeastern Minnesota, in the far south, two, uh, two or three uh, Winona, Houston, and Fillmore counties in the far southeastern part of the state. And then there's this other population that's up in Chisago County, north and east of the Twin Cities. So um, they're kind of uh, spotty. Uh, they are one of three lizard species in Minnesota. There's also the prairie skink, which is very similar in appearance to the common five-line skink, but is widely distributed and again is a grassland species and occurs in grassland habitats. Common five-line skink occurs in areas where there is forested habitat. Um, they'll live in, along forest edges or forest openings, uh, savannas, um, and it's often um, oak uh, a community type of uh, forest community. Um, and they also occur where there are rock outcrops. It's another very important factor of their, um, of the habitat that they occur in. And they use that rock structure for uh, cover. Uh, the, they might go underneath a little slab of rock um, or they could go down into the fissure or the crevice uh, to get protection during the winter. They, they would freeze during the winter. So they need to uh, escape, go underneath the frost line. <clears throat> so they need to have deep enough crevices where they can get um, away from that, that cold temperature. They feed on invertebrates, um, spiders, crickets, other things that you might find underneath a log, if, you, if you've ever lifted up a log and you see creepy crawly things, they'll, they'll get whatever they can <laughs> capture. Um, and uh, let's see, what am I missing? Oh, so Jeff went on, I guess I could talk about the identification. They are about eight inches in length. Uh, about half of that is their tail. They can be identified by the five lines, as their name indicates, um, down their back and sides. The middle line, um, it, it turns into a V at the top of their head. And that's very evident um, in hatchlings and juveniles, but fades quite a bit as they age, um, which makes them a little more difficult to distinguish between the prairie skink. <clears throat> um, but the young ones, Jeff was elaborating on the tail of the bull snake, young five-line skinks have bright blue tails. I mean, the, 
the the bull snake has tail has nothing on the five lines. <laughs> <laughs> it's electric a five blue. electric blue. Yeah, they're just they're just beautiful. Um, <laughs> but since I'm talking about the tail, I have to point out that if you do try to capture them, that tail will come off, and that's one of their defenses. They uh, leave this little wiggling thing in your hand, and they run off um, to safety, hopefully. <laughs> And will that regrow? This is the myth that everybody wants to. It does to. regrow, yes. But um, you know, it, it does provide some benefit. That the tail obviously does provide some benefit to the individual, um, either uh, nutrition or moisture during drought periods. And so, a skink is um, uh, at a disadvantage if it loses its tail. And whenever we capture them, we obviously try not to let them lose their, cause mm. them to lose their tail. Wow, that was a really great introduction to these wonderful prairie herps. I'm using the right terminology here. Sure. <laughs> so, Lisa, tell us a little bit about why we should care. Why do these guys matter? Why Why are we here today talking about these critters? Well, well, for one, both of the species, as we mentioned, are species of special concern and state species in greatest conservation need. They're they're at risk, um, but at a very basic level. Um, to paraphrase famous biologist Aldo Leopold, if we consider everything in nature good, then every part is good. And so to keep every cog and wheel is the first precaution of intelligent tinkering. And these do play really integral, important roles in maintaining their ecosystems. Both, they're both predators and prey. They're part of that whole food web. Um, from a standpoint of humans, they provide ecological services, for instance, environmentally friendly rodent control. Jeff mentioned about how the bull snakes um, eat a lot of rodents, which can be agricultural pests. They can um, carry be vectors of disease that are transmittable to humans, such as Lyme disease. So reducing those uh, rodent populations is important. Five line skinks. Um, eat a lot of invertebrates such as crickets and spiders and millipedes and termites and and slugs and they also provide food again all the way up the food chain uh, to other species there's also the cultural significance um, both uh, lizards and snakes uh, feature in uh, Native American sacred texts and traditions and symbols, including the uh, Dakota Sioux tribes along the uh, upper Minnesota River Valley. Uh, Jeff mentioned herping. You know, there's an increasing popularity of herping, which is, you know, the sort of reptile and amphibian for, version of uh, wildlife watching. So many people uh, derive great enjoyment from these species. So, and then lastly, they're indicators of environmental health or unhealth. Uh, as they go, so go a lot of other wildlife, and so and so for people. So those those are important reasons why um, it's really important. And and we did also pick these species because. They're underrepresented in survey and monitoring data. A lot of the information was old. Um, often conservation and management is based on response of you know, how vegetation responds to management or other species groups like birds or large mammals. It's quite possible to make an area, a plant community look good, quote unquote, but not meet the needs of other associated wildlife. And reptiles can have very special requirements. They may not respond the same way as like birds do or at the same scale. Certainly our reptiles can't fly uh, to new places when their habitats are lost. Um, 
And you mentioned that they, you know, like for instance, the five line skinks um, occur in small, you know, sort of isolated populations. Um, mentioned the, the rock outcrops, those are in the Minnesota River Valley, those are historically prairie rock outcrops. They're not making more of those. Um, and so if they get altered or lost in some way, that becomes a real issue. And bull snakes tend to thrive best in native prairie, but we only have 1% of all Minnesota's historic native prairie, let alone the dry native prairie. So again, um, taking care of them and monitoring them um, helps a lot of other things and helps us gauge the, the effectiveness of our conservation. That was a perfect, beautiful response. I just want to say that. Wait, thank like, you. It was really nice. I liked it. We um, want to jump in. We want to make sure that we get to this. So, Carol, give us a really quick overview of the Minnesota River Reptile Project. What were y'all doing out there? I know. How, how do you condense that? But try to give us the quick and dirty. What are, you, what are y'all trying to do? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we're trying to learn more about these rare species so that we can maintain, we can improve our management of them and try to have sustainable populations for future generations of uh, Minnesotans to enjoy and, uh, and learn about. To give you a quick glimpse of the study uh, would involve a little more time, uh, but I'll just give you a, a glimpse of, of our approach. With regards to the skink part of our study, we have four sites with varying degrees of management needs. Some of these are protected sites and managers are going to go out there and they're doing prescribed burning and cutting and whatnot, and they need to know how best to do that. So what we've done is identified uh, placed grids on the ground that have uh, cover objects that the skinks will use if they're present. And one is metal and one is wood. And there are, what, over 90 cover objects within the project, but placed over these four different sites. And they're in grids at each site. Um, so the cover boards are checked in transects uh, at least once a week. And uh, the numbers of skinks are counted, they're, they're marked, um, the sex is identified if possible, and uh, the age. And then we've uh, also characterized each of these, or collected data on the different habitat features at each one of these plots with the cover objects. And so over time, as the data is collected and skinks tend to be using some areas more than others, we can do, uh, Mike Warland actually, um, who was in a previous podcast, is going to be doing some analysis, has done some analysis, and is, is hopefully going to be finishing up on that. Um, to compare the numbers of skinks found with the different types of habitat features at each one of these plots. And we collected information such as the percent of the open rock that's available to the skinks. The uh, cover, the, the types of woody cover or rock cover that's available at each one, the canopy cover, um, and, and such things as that. So, and in regards to uh, the bull snake, which is also part of the project, um, we were, we knew that records occurred in the Minnesota River Valley, uh, but there hadn't been sightings for, for several years. And 
given that we were interested in learning more about skinks, we combined the bull snake into the project so that we could learn more about its presence and uh, habitat use also. Um, this is a disjunct, the bull snake population is, is also disjunct from other populations in the state. So it is a kind of a critical population and, and a site that we need to learn a lot more about so that again, we can have a sustainable population there. Um, Carolyn, when you say it's disjunct, you mean it's separated from other populations? Correct, yeah. So it's kind of uh, there. It is very isolated, yes. And, and there might be other individuals, might be other populations out there along the Minnesota River Valley or in, you know, far off prairies that we don't know about. But this is the one that we know about. We're trying to learn more about it so that um, we can have it around for a long time. Um, likely, you know, there were probably bull snakes were super abundant um, back when there were there were a lot of prairies in the western part of the state. But at this point, we have very few populations and we want to make sure they're around. It took us two years, actually three years of surveys to locate bull snakes that we're studying now. And uh, we, as Jeff pointed out, we're putting transmitters in them, uh, surgically implanting them and tracking them. Uh, initially they were tracked on a daily basis or I guess five times a week. And uh, at this point with less staff, on the ground, we're um, tracking them as we can, preferably uh, two, one or two times a week. So you use you use the cover boards, and yeah, I presume you, you flip them up, right? Correct. And then you pounce on whatever's underneath yep. it, and so then you're it's real fun. You I don't know. If avoid you, the cactus. Well, yeah, that that'd be an important step. Um, it's real fun. It's quite a thrill to to do this. I've done it before um, in Iowa, but. So then you get a sense of the abundance, right? Is is basically what you're doing out there um, is getting getting an idea of how many. Um, and how so use the habitat and how, right and how how they're using the habitat. Do you do you regurgitate them? You you look at what they're eating? No, all? no, we haven't done that. Um, you know, we just look at uh, we haven't collected information on actual items that they're that they could be eating um, but you know pill bugs what's another name for them they're, they were pretty abundant wood lice sow bugs wood, wood lice, lice. Yeah. Yeah. sow bugs that's sow bugs yeah um you know, roaches roaches yeah roaches were actually pretty abundant out there that was that was pretty interesting and i you know would guess that that's a part of their diet but we don't we don't know i don't think anybody caught one with a roach in its mouth they seem to like the you know the the skinks seem to like like rivers of you know like low vegetation that kind of wind through the uh, the uh, rock outcrops and that that's where their food is there's cover there's you know shade moisture um, so it's kind of that interspersion yeah that's great so thanks for that um, just overview of the project. Carol, how just real quickly, how much longer are you plan on being out there and watching these skinks and snakes? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, we started in 2014, 15, I'm sorry, 2015, um, sort of did a trial run uh, that year and then uh, added additional cover objects in 2016 and 2017, continued that um, effort. 
Um, so that's when our, our funding basically ended, um, the project ended. Uh, but we hope to uh, come up with some best management practices for the land managers and then return if we can get funding to do this. You know, long-term monitoring is not a, a easy sell, uh, but we would hope to go back in maybe five years or so to, and look at how the population may have changed based on the management practices that have taken place there. That's awesome. So Jeff, tell us a little bit about what you think the future holds for skinks and snakes in the Minnesota River Valley? Well, in my opinion, um, I think that uh, for five line skinks, um, the future looks pretty good, uh, especially with the data that we're collecting, um, the habitat measures that we're taking. I think that if we can um, provide um, best management practices and technical guidance and land managers can get in there and properly manage the, their habitat and their population, it looks pretty good for five land skinks. Uh, I'm less optimistic about bull snakes. Uh, and the reason for that is because we're uh, finding that these are a, a prairie species that require a lot of space. Um, they're a big snake. They need a lot of space. Um, we're not sure how their genetic uh, flow is. In other words, their, their connectiveness to other bull snake populations. So we don't really... Um, uh, know uh, how that will impact future populations um, or, or the populations in the future, I should say. Uh, and the other thing is that um, um, prairie restorations, as they are now, might not be sufficient for bull snakes. In other words, they seem to need a certain structure to the prairie that restorations might not provide to them. So. Uh, are you saying they need to be more diverse? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, what I'm saying is that they need grasses of intermediate type and height. So um, when something, when the grasses are too tall and that's all you have on, on the ground, um, bull snakes cannot thermoregulate properly. Um, in other words, everything's too closed in, it appears, and they can't bask properly or or they don't seem to want to use those areas for whatever reason when you have a great diversity of seed mix in there and you have areas of taller grasses but then shorter grasses they seem to really um like that a lot more now this is all anecdotal based upon our uh, our telemetry results but that's what it looks like and so there are areas of restored prairie that they just seem to not want to use and they seem to really favor those more native sections of the prairie or possibly restorations that look more like native prairies in their structure and their diversity they're approaching that native prairie structure mm -hmm. maybe they could they could survive there as well yeah perhaps bees too bees need that bare ground right for nesting yeah. so there's lots of things that can benefit from that varied structure birds there's a lot of birds too that can benefit good job mentioning birds jess this is a good segue for us while we're mentioning all the critters. We're just going to move into Let's Science! Do the literature! 
So this is the part of the podcast where we're going to recommend a book, a blog, or a paper. And today we are super lucky because we have a whole bunch of resources for you. And we're just going to round robin this in order. So we'll go ahead and start with Carol's pick. Tell us a little bit about the paper that you chose and just give us a real quick overview of it. Okay. Um, well, I, I was interested in this paper because I recently emailed uh, Dr. Heckner and he he provided this to me and I have to admit I haven't looked at it in super lot of detail but it um, he provided a, a report called population trends and the effect of ground cover on habitat selection of the five line skink at Rondo Provincial Park with a suggested ranking of locations for translocation in the Carolinian region Whew. okay so it's a long title it's a long time. Um, but it's a, it's a report to um, uh, kind of follow up with some long-term uh, surveys he's been doing with his students in Canada and uh, looking at uh, the habitat use of skinks. And they've gotten to the point where they know where the skinks are, they know where the best populations are, and they're looking at places where they can repopulate, um, you know, bring young skinks over to, to a, a, another site after the habitat has been improved. One of the issues that we face along the Minnesota River and elsewhere in Minnesota is that the invasive species such as red cedar can take over sites and with proper habitat, as Jeff mentioned, we could improve those sites. We could even repopulate some if we find that uh, skinks are absent at sites where they, they previously had been. Um, so so that's uh and he's got a lot of great information in here um the 2016 report that was also put out um covers a lot of telemetry that they did on skinks and that was pretty fascinating it's something we wanted to do but weren't able to do with skinks uh although we've been doing it with with bull snakes um and they found that um the skinks use uh trees quite a bit. Um, they're actually going in tree cavities to nest. Uh, the individual, one individual skink was found over 30 feet up in a tree. Um, <laughs> hollow trees, you know, they provide good cover. There's probably a lot of insects in there um, and uh, they can adjust their temperature um, based on, you know, just moving to different parts of the tree. So um, anyway, that's, that's a short and sweet reply response, I guess. <laughs> Thank you. And I want to add one quick cl clarification just for our listeners. So you mentioned that red cedar, um, you're talking about being invasive, and it absolutely is, but I just want to clarify that it is a native species in the state of Minnesota, but it's, we call it invasive. This is where we get muddy waters here, but it's invasive because it doesn't play well with prairie. So if you want to maintain prairie habitats, you don't want red cedar in that habitat. It also tends to make monocultures, which means it only likes itself and it makes lots of itself. And then that sort of gets rid of this prairie horizon that we talk about a lot on the podcast. And that's what we need if we're going to maintain all of the species that rely on prairie. And I'll note that Jess and I are individuals of those species that need prairie. Well, and bogthorn is a non-native invasive species that's a problem right 
And Lisa, it's your turn. <clears throat> okay. Well, the one I picked was by uh, Josh Kapfer and and James Coggins and Bob Hay, and it's called Spatial Ecology and Habitat Selection of Bull Snakes at the northern periphery of their geogra geographic range. And hey, you know, Minnesota is, you know, near the <clears throat> northern edge of bull snake uh, range. And one of the reasons why I really like this is there were a lot of things that I, you know, that seemed to apply to our area. For instance, uh, that they found that their bull snakes had a large home range. Um, they did see a lot of site fidelity that they were using the same areas uh, year after year. Now we did see some differences uh, between our 2016 um, radio tracking and, I mean, I mean 2017 and 2018. Seems like uh, uh, in 2018 they used some, you know, they went a lot further than they had gone the previous year. So that does show that, you know, you can't just do one year of tracking and assume that that applies all the time. Um, they did find, interestingly, that their bull snakes, uh, <clears throat> a lot of them overwintered in south-facing rock outcrops, deep in crevices, just like, you know, like five, our five-line skinks do. Now, we didn't, haven't seen that yet with, with the snakes we've been tracking, but it does make us think that there could be ten potential for uh, that along the Minnesota River Valley, that that's a way for them to get deep enough below the frost line. Um, <clears throat> um, another, some other things that I thought were really key points is that because there's such geographic variation and how bull snakes uh, use habitat, we've seen differences between, uh, even in Minnesota, between our more um, eastern populations versus um, those in uh, the more western Minnesota River Valley, that there is not a one-size-fits-all uh, prescription. You don't turn to page 34, this is what you do everywhere. So you really have to know what your local population is doing and what their local conditions are for that. And also for management, the um, timing and intensity and frequency really make a difference for bull snakes. So you might not want to do, you know, like repeated burns in the same area annually for bull snakes. And also there's times of year, like when they're just coming out of um, overwintering, where they're still a little sluggish and cold, um, that they could be more vulnerable. So while fire and some of these other management tools are really vital for prairie management, um, you that you really have to be a bit more nuanced, particularly since our prairies are so limited and fragmented now um, that we don't have that unlimited broken prairie. So we need to be a little more careful. That's another classic theme of the Prairie Podcast. There's no recipe for this cake that is the prairie management. <laughs> we can't. You need, sugar, you need sugar, which is the diversity. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we definitely need, there's some key parts, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, Megan's cake's going to be different than my cake's, going to be different from Lisa's cake, going to be different from Jeff's cake and Carol's cake. Let them eat cake, cake. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> All right, Jeff, give us your fabulous science pick. Okay, so mine was one that I happen to be an author on. Um, it deals with uh, intergeneric uh, hybridization in snakes in the Midwestern United States. Uh, and this happened to be uh, a couple of hybrids that were found um, between bull snakes and fox snakes in both Minnesota and Iowa. Uh, and the reason I chose this paper was not only because it was 
significant at the time. Um, it was one of the um, first supposed uh, intergeneric hybridization occurrences in snakes, like ever across the you know in the world. Um, and this one we were able to prove using not only morphological uh, analysis, but also genetic analysis. Um, so these were definitely hybrids between these two species. So not only is that unusual, but the reason I chose this for today's um, uh, paper or topic is because um, an interesting thing that we've been seeing in Minnesota with all of our populations of, of bull snakes is that um, fox snakes seem to be very um, ab either absent or very scarce uh, within the population of bull snakes, but they are common surrounding the area there. So, and in one of the study sites, which is in kind of the eastern part of Minnesota, is where one of these hybrids was found. So, again, we're talking not only about just how bull snakes are declining, but also keeping their genetic diversity. And um, we need to be careful that as the, the population or the habitat changes, we're not allowing the more adaptable fox snakes to penetrate and come into those habitats and push the bull snakes out. So I thought that was an appropriate paper. It's really interesting. For today's, yeah. We always, we always have to think about those um, com competitions between species for whatever whatever is yeah. causing it. It's really yep. interesting. Just like Lisa's uh, Aldo Leopold quote, you know, mm -hmm. it's about the cogs. Okay, well, we, we'll reference those as well as some other really great, um, uh, great references like the amphibians and reptiles in Minnesota book and, and a couple of um, Minnesota volunteer articles. But that was really great. Thank you all for bringing your picks. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Jess. Take a hike. I think I will. And I think today I might want to take a hike on some rock outcrops and find some of these electrifying blue-tailed skinks or these beautiful yellow... No, I'm not going to look for bull snakes. Let's be honest. I'm not. They sound... Come on now. <laughs> Let's be honest. They sound great and they're super-duper important, but Megan is afraid of snakes and she oh. gets the snake shakes. So, yeah, I know it. Ecologists fail. Ecologists fail. So, <laughs> it just is what it is. So we are going to talk about uh, hiking, yeah, in our, some of your amazing public lands. And I just want to mention, as we always do at this part of the podcast, that these are your public lands. These are places where you can recreate. You're a landowner, people. Get out there and explore your land holdings. And so you can visit and learn about where you can do this on the DNR's website, the DNR Recreation Compass. And so all the things that we're going to mention today, don't forget that you can just type that into your old Google machine, the DNR Rec Compass or Recreation Compass. Make sure you're in Minnesota or else it's going to be a fairly long hike. <laughs> and you can find the lands we're going to talk about today, which are yours. So let's go ahead and start with Carol. So you won't find any five-line skinks at the site that I picked, unfortunately. Uh, prairie skinks may occur there but um and if you do find five lines i want to know about it uh but it's the whitewater wildlife management area and it is widely known by uh outdoor recreationists uh hunters anglers whatever there's trout fishing there um 
turkeys and deer. Uh, so a lot of people go there for that reason, but it's also got a great herb diversity. Um, in, in general, basically southeastern Minnesota is a herb hotspot in the state. So um, the Whitewater Wildlife Management Area has several bluff prairies and these uh, have rock outcrops and grasslands and they're surrounded by um, oak forest or oak woodland. Um, there's also savanna within the WMA and these provide, uh, these sites provide habitat for a variety of snakes, including smaller ringneck snakes, um, fox snakes, milk snakes, um, bull snakes occur there, although they're not very abundant. Um, Eastern hognose snakes, uh, and there's rattlesnakes are in the vicinity, uh, but it's probably pretty unlikely you would encounter them down there. Uh, but there's, if you get up to the bluff prairies, these are south facing rock outcrops. Um, you can have a, a beautiful view of the Whitewater River and that entire valley. And it's just, it's just an awesome place to go to. That's great. All right, Lisa, give us your pick. Oh gosh, it was really hard to choose, but I think my pick is going to be the Swedes Forest Scientific and Natural Area where you can find uh, five-line skinks. It's a uh, little over two uh, 200 acres in Redwood and Yellow Medicine County located along the upper Minnesota River Valley. And I love it because of the rock outcrop prairies. I love the old bones of those ancient outcrops. They're billions of years old. I just want to drape myself on them. And there are all these really cool, you know, like rare plants and the five-line skinks. And, you know, you can lose yourself in those vistas, but I say find yourself in the process. And, you know, and while you're exploring, you know, those rock outcrops, you know, look for the evidence of the, the, the grooves on the rock of glaciation. But I would say, you know, view gently because there are a lot of sensitive, you know, species there that depend on the rock outcrops. And, you know, so view, but, but view gently. Um, so uh, the other thing, you know, while I have a little opportunity, while I've got a captive audience here, you know, we've been talking about the importance of of monitoring and conservation and of course what we're doing now outreach to let people know about prairie and the the important um, critters and, and plants that live there but in order to do that we have to have support for that and one of the ways that people can do that is one by letting their decision makers know that they support this kind of work but also to donate to the minnesota non-game wildlife fund which provides over 80 percent of the funding for the non-game program we don't get any state general fund money or funding or fishing license fees and there's many ways to contribute one of the key ways is you know the non-game wildlife checkoff while you're doing your taxes but any time of the year online donations one time or recurring be that you know that uh uh, ongoing membership sort of approach. Um, you can mail in your donations and even estate planning. We use those not only directly, but to uh, leverage and match other funds. So um, show the love. It's not enough to love wildlife. You got to care for them too. Perfect. I love that. So we did a little bit of a 
Uh, I'm just still, I'm struggling a little bit because I, with this view gently thing, I'm imagining that I'm viewing gently when I go out there that you're also going to be draped on a rock outcrop. So you should also view gently because of the sensitivity of the habitat, but also so you're not walking on top of Lisa. (laughs) 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 Yeah, watch, don't trip on me as you go by. Jeff, what's your pick? Well, my pick is going to be Blue Mound State Park. Blue Mound State Park is found in Rock County in the very southwestern portion of Minnesota, and it is beautiful. It's known for its geology, and again, those rocks and those rock outcroppings are something that really attracts me to that area. And I'm I'm not going to drape myself all over the rocks like Lisa because I'm afraid I'll roll away and roll into a cactus. Um, And and cactus are are numerous out there, and that's one of the places that make it cool, but I don't really want it stuck in me. So... um, There's a, lot, there's a lot of diverse plants and animals that live out there, and especially some of the uh, plants are listed species, and you can only see them at certain times of the year. And these little tiny, like, um, basically, they're nothing more than little puddles that form on the rocks, and they're just little tiny. And the other cool thing is sometimes you get, like, little shrimps in there, too, and I wanted to find a way to work shrimps into this, so that's a good <laughs> But they are cute. I mean, they just kind of motor around in there and it's, it's pretty awesome. Um, but even like from aerial photography, the place looks just great. It looks impressive. And there's bison out there now. So, you know, it's not to love. I mean, it's just a really great place to, to go. And there's line snakes there. It's yeah. the only place in Minnesota you can see lion snakes. Huh. So. It's quite a nice uh, campground, too. Megan and I stayed yes. there. The no very fishers. No fishers there. That's <laughs> accurate. No fishers, you're safe. It's yeah. a, these are all yeah. great. And these are all part of your public land. So we are super. I mean, can you tell that these folks love their jobs and love this beautiful place that's called Minnesota? I mean, I'm really grateful that you guys have all shared some of this awesome knowledge with us today. I just want to thank each and every one of you for being here today. I I just enjoy so much learning and hearing new things and getting the nitty-gritty and the in-depth. And we're really, really, really grateful that we live in the, this beautiful state of Minnesota where we have all of these amazing places that we can visit because of the citizens of Minnesota who value our natural resources so much. And they support it through things like the Legacy Amendment and the Non-Game Checkoff. That's you guys voting out there saying, we love conservation, we love our lakes, we love our prairies, and we want to keep Minnesota one of the best places in the whole wide world to live. So thank you very, very much for that. Um, I just want to let everybody know that we're done for the day. It's I hate yeah. it. Jess, don't you hate it when we're done? Yeah, I hate it. I didn't get my scary turtle question answered. I'm going to have to check out Carol's book. But, you know... I'll be okay. Maybe I'll I'll post the answer on the on the website if I can. Um, but I'm glad Jeff worked a shrimp in there. You know that's, that's, a, that's a big part. I think it was fairy shrimp, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it's supposed to be fairy shrimp. Right. Yeah. Just wanted to clarify shrimps, that. Shrimps in general, yeah. You know. Oh, I, I had a lot of fun today. Thank you all so much. I know. Thank you. And we will catch you next time on the Prairie Pod on Prairie Tuesday, where we are going to be talking about interceding into established restorations, where Jeff was mentioning that we need to find ways to make some of our older, dense plantings maybe a little bit more diverse. Not maybe a little bit more diverse. Definitely more diverse. Diversity is the backbone of everything, and that's what we want. So we're going to be talking with some awesome wildlife managers 
and land managers and you're not going to want to miss it. And just like always, you can find all of the resources that we talked about today, including the take a hikes and the let science on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. We will catch y'all next time. 